Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you uh, so much for making your way uh, here to this room after the prayer breakfast. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, we're just waiting on Baroness Cox, who is extricating herself from a uh, 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 conversation uh, that she needs to just finish off. But we'll make a start so that we uh, uh, can get everything in. I'm delighted that you're here. I'm also delighted that our panel is here. Um, just a few words. Uh, in, the, in the running order today that I was given, I was given precisely no minutes to introduce this panel, <laughs> and at the same time given basically a book about each of them, such as their accomplishments and uh, backgrounds. Right at the end, a uh, friend of mine, Rachel Carnegie, Reverend Rachel Carnegie, the co-executive director of the Anglican Alliance, which coordinates the platform for relief, development, advocacy work amongst the churches and agencies across the worldwide Anglican Communion. And one of the <coughs> priorities of the Anglican Alliance is mobilizing the global Anglican Communion alongside other denominations and faiths, faiths in working to end modern slavery. Um, please, Caroline. Come. I've got your right. Good, welcome. We've just started uh, introducing, so um, that's fine. I first. Uh, uh, met Rachel when uh, I was uh, working with Tear Fund and we worked on uh, a range of initiatives around uh, violence against women and gender-based violence. And uh, so it's great, Rachel, that you are here. Next to Rachel is uh, Kevin Hyland, who will be known to um, you as the UK's independent anti-slavery commissioner, the UK's first independent anti-slavery commissioner, um, and uh, appointed by the then Home Secretary, Theresa May. And uh, his role is uh, a direct consequence or um, empowered by the Modern Slavery Act, which received royal assent in March 2015. Um, Kevin, it's really great that you're here. Thank, Thank you. you. Next to him, a friend of mine, uh, Michael Hastings, Lord Hastings, um, who is the Global Head of Citizenship for KPMG. There is a list of jobs that you have done in your life here, Michael, all of which uh, just make me exhausted reading them. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that, but you are very, very welcome and appreciated for your many, many years of uh, service to have the voice of the voiceless heard in all kinds of settings and opportunities that you have had. So thank you. And uh, Baroness Cox. Um, Created life here in 82, Deputy Speaker of the House of Lords from 85 to 2005, founder of loads of things, um, <laughs> <laughs> Vice President and President of loads of things. Um, but when I was saying to someone, um, we're just waiting on Baroness Cox, who's been caught up in a conversation, they said to me, just find a war zone and she'll be there. <laughs> and maybe in so many ways that sums up your commitment to those who have been the most marginalised and some of the most disadvantaged in the world. So there's our panel. How we're going to do is I'm going to give a short introduction, emphasis on short. Um, I have some questions uh, for each of our panel members, uh, which are loosely, uh, they know what, what they are, they're loosely to bring out some of the issues. We've got a time then for, uh, for us to have a conversation and a discussion together. I wonder what brought you to this room. <coughs> I wonder what it was that made this issue, out of all the issues, the issue you wanted to spend an hour talking about. 
for me, there was a moment 13 years ago. I was international director of evolution development agency for Tour Fund, and I was doing work in Chiang Mai, Thailand. It was seven o'clock in the evening in a brightly lit tourist street, and I was walking down the road with a female colleague <coughs> when a young girl stopped me and asked me if I wanted to have sex with her. Her opening price was the equivalent of seven pounds. Lord knows what I could have bargained her down to had I been so inclined. I was able to keep walking, she was not, because her owner kept her working that bit of pavement in that street. For me, a very, very brief interaction made a theoretical problem a personal problem. Her face pursued me. I tried to find out about her from the people that I was working with in Chiang Mai. She was probably, given the brothels in that area, she was probably 14 or 15. She came from the hillsides, uh, despised ethnic group. And she would work there, probably, until she was either sold off or until she died, which was likely to be in her early 20s. That, for me, started a journey. Because a few days later, in my hotel room in Chiang Mai, knowing what I'd found out, I realised that on that night, I had walked away from her. And I promised myself and I promised God that I would not walk away again. That started a journey of how could I be involved in this fight to end modern slavery. I knew very little, but I began to find out more and more and more and more. And it was in finding out more and more and more that I came across the International Justice Mission. My friends said to me, talk to them. They really do great work. And I did, and we ended up doing some some workshops and so on, and 11 years later, I became <coughs> CEO of IGN here in the UK. I wonder what your story is. All of us in this room, I imagine, have some kind of personal moment where this moves from being an intellectual exercise <coughs> to something that we must do something about, that we must invest some of our time, our talent, our treasure in seeing an end to modern slavery. And of course, we stand on the shoulder of giants. Um, we stand on an abolitionist mo uh, movement, some of whom are incredibly well-known, <coughs> the Wilberforces. Uh, and those around them were ex-slave owners and traders, the ex-slaves. And the many, many, many who just sometimes unthinkingly colluded with the slave trade, because that's the way the world was. And there are many giants that we don't know who thousands and thousands of activists who pioneered the campaign uh, tactics that we still use today, the writing of petitions, the, uh, they, they uh, boycotted sugar, they created a very early version of Facebook memes when they did cartoons poking fun of slave owners and plastered them on village notice boards and uh, in public spaces. 
and so a movement was born in the 18th century. And that movement, of course, saw <laughs> the abolition of the Slave Trade Act in 1807. 26 years later, the Slavery Abolition Act of, of 1833 finished that initial task. But it wasn't until 1981 that the abolitionist message had spread across the world that slavery was illegal in every nation. Illegal, but still existing. Illegal, but of a conservative estimate, over 40 million slaves today. <coughs> in India today, a slave master is more likely to be struck by lightning than convicted for his crime. That undermines the abolitionist movement. Where there is impunity, there is slavery. <coughs> slavery happens because three things come together. Firstly, violently greedy people manage to meet, secondly, desperately vulnerable people, and thirdly, they think they can get away with it, because often they can. At International Justice Mission, we have focused our work on how do we attack impunity? How do we stop slavery paying? It turns out that slave owners are as cowardly and as selfish as the rest of us. And they don't want to go to prison. They don't want their lives disrupted. The Gates Foundation funded research over four years to our work in the Philippines. Over a four-year period, we saw a 79% reduction in miners in the sex industry in the cities, three cities we were working in. 79%. And the uh, academics doing the research, they concluded that the reason was, one, people buying and selling children from the sex industry had been prosecuted and were in prison. But secondly, the multiplier effect of that meant that the industry had just got more dangerous. And so people didn't do it. When laws are enforced, crimes stop. And of course, we have seen in the last few years here a whole new front opening up in the fight against modern slavery. Through um, courageous and visionary work, with great thanks, we saw the Modern Slavery Act passed, um, become law in 2015 which led to Kevin's role as an independent commissioner. But it's opened up a whole new front in the fight against slavery. It's enabled conversations with companies about their supply chains. It's enabled conversations with governments about how they're enforcing their laws. The work of Kevin and, and many, many others in ensuring that the, the SDGs reflected the anti-slavery agenda has been hugely helpful around the world. So we look back on 200 years of abolitionist activity and there is much to be grateful for, much to give thanks for. We are particularly grateful that here in this country we've been world leaders <coughs> in opening up a new front in the fight against slavery but we are so aware that there is so much more to do. But here in the 21st century, 
plagues were still a problem. Well, here in this seminar tent now, 120 children will have been sold around the world. And that will be true the next hour, and the next hour, and the next hour. And we stand on the shoulders of giants with the baton passed to us to say it's our turn. What can we do? Which is what the panel is going to answer. Um, so I'm going to sit down. So, um, and I'm going to start with um, Caroline Scott. Caroline, Caroline thank you so much for being here. Um, Caroline, the state and the, and the legislation obviously played a critical role in ending the transatlantic slave trade. And here in the UK, we now have the Modern Slavery Act. And similar legislation is looking to be enacted all over the world, actually, um, which is wonderful. What do you see as the role of the state in ending modern-day slavery? And how can we engage, uh, help people engage with government to make a difference? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this very august panel um, and to speak on a subject about which I feel passionately. You just briefly indicated how you first became involved. May I briefly indicate how I first became involved? I first became involved by meeting people who've been the slaves of today, looking into the eyes of people who have endured slavery themselves. And this was a few years back, and I wanted the year when we celebrated the bicentenary of William Wilberforce's parliamentary achievements uh, to write a book to highlight the horrors and the tragedies of modern-day slavery. And funny enough, way back then, it wasn't very much on the agenda. I'm talking about seven years ago now. And the book, um, I'm not promoting the book, but it brings to life the horror, the vulnerability, the suffering, the pain, the anguish, the helplessness, the hopelessness of modern-day slavery. And the first three chapters are the stories, it could be repeated many more times, of people into whose eyes I've looked, who suffered slavery in Sudan. They, again, the vulnerability, the helplessness, the horror. Those who suffered different kinds of slavery in Burma, call it Burma, not Myanmar, because the local people tend to prefer that, but there's the sexual slavery, there's the forced labor, and so on. And the third chapter are the horrors of the kids who suffered in northern Uganda, you remember in Tory's Lord's Resistance Army, no lord of ours, mm. but which abducted at least 25,000 young people and forced them to become child soldiers. And some of their stories and what they went through are in here, as well as some stories of the victims of trafficking on our own doorstep. So that really hurt my heart and really gave me the passion uh, to be involved in modern-day slavery um, more abroad now because we have real professionals here dealing with it in the UK, but very concerned, too, about what is happening in the UK. So to turn to your question, um, just very briefly an overview. The UK government uses modern slavery as an umbrella term to cover the offence of different kinds of variations on the horrible theme of human trafficking, slavery, servitude, and forced or compulsory labor. And the report of the Interdepartmental Ministerial Group on Modern Slavery, published in 2016, gave the following assessment of modern slavery in the UK. I don't know if this is on, can you hear in the back? Well, if you can't and you still want to, do let me know. Do, <laughs> do, want to have a nap. <laughs> do want to have a nap having it an early morning like I'm sure we all had, I should fully understand. But very briefly, in 2014, the Home Office estimated there were between 10,000 and 13,000 potential victims of modern slavery in the UK. And the National Referral Mechanism, that's the UK's framework for referring and supporting victims, received 
3,266 referrals of potential victims in 2015, and that was a 40.40% increase on 2014. I'm afraid it's probably gone up and up since then. And this is really worrying. So with regard to what action the government is taking to address this very challenging and tragic situation, in 2014, the UK government published a modern slavery strategy that set out how government law enforcement, NGOs and other partners could tackle modern slavery in our country. And it's based on the four Ps. First, to pursue. Prosecuting and disrupting individuals and groups responsible for modern slavery in our own country. Second, prevent. Preventing people from engaging in modern slavery. Thirdly, protection. Protecting safeguards against modern slavery by protecting the vulnerable people from exploitation and increasing awareness of and resilience against this crime. And the fourth P, prepare. Reducing the harm caused by modern slavery through improved victim identification and enhanced support. Now, big challenges. A key part of the government's response was, of course, the Modern Slavery Act 2015, to which you referred, which applies to England and Wales. The first legislation of its kind in the world, and just a few highlights of what it provides for. It consolidated existing offences of slavery and human trafficking, increased the penalties for those offences, it provided for new preventative orders, it created new maritime enforced powers, it also introduced measures to support and protect victims, and this is an important part, what's called the supply chains, required reporting by large businesses of what steps they take to ensure that slavery is absent from every part of their supply <coughs> chain throughout the world. And finally, with the examples I'm going to give, it created the role of the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner, and wonderful he's here today because he's the greatest expert on modern slavery and trafficking in our country today. So I need to say no more about your role, or more than capable of uh, speaking about your immensely important work yourself. So those were the provisions of what government has done. Uh, I think we all need to uh, keep a very steady watch on what is happening and maintain pressure on the government because they're big agendas and there are certain ways in which they're not all being fulfilled as we might wish. Thank you very much. Um, that's really helpful in terms of what we're doing uh, kind of within our own house. U the UK still has a role internationally mm -hmm. um, and <coughs> obviously there's things that very helpful things like the Strategic Development Goal of 8.7 which requires countries to take immediate and effective measures to eradicate a variety of types of modern slavery and by 2025 end child labour in all its forms. If you had the cabinet sitting in this room, what would you encourage them to do on the global stage to encourage the global fight against modern slavery? Well, briefly, first of all, of course, there was the improvement in terms of trying to monitor what goes on in the supply chains to make sure big businesses don't have somewhere or other, as indeed was found, uh, areas in which people are subjected to forced labor, exploitation, different kinds of slavery. That's a positive. <coughs> but I had a personal disappointment with regard to uh, the bill. And my concern was that we're not really a global slavery act. I had hoped we could extend the provisions of the act. And it may be a wild and you know, crazy hope, but I moved amendments to this effect to ensure a genuinely global coverage investigating the extent of slavery in every country, raising awareness and having some resources in every country available to help victims who've been found with rescue and rehabilitation. And that's uh, so why I greatly appreciate the work of IGM. I'm a great fan of IGM. It's exactly what we do. 
But the amendments I moved were to try to introduce a requirement that every UK embassy or high commission in the world should have a responsibility to look for cases of slavery in their domain, to report them and to provide help for the victims. That would have helped to establish a generally comprehensive knowledge of the existence of slavery in all its forms globally and could have served as a basis for calling governments to account those governments that are implicated with slavery, perhaps to shame them into addressing the situation and also provide some resources for helping their victims. Well, sadly, in my view, the government didn't accept those amendments. I believe it would have given the Modern Slavery Act a truly global dimension, but they were not accepted. Now, I'll just give one example, if I may, of great concern. Um, there's a good friend of mine who is an obstetrician and gynecologist, and he's undertaken a lot of charitable work in Ethiopia, helping women and people really suffering in Ethiopia uh, from poverty and from a, a lot of uh, physical and clinical problems associated with his specialty. And he's told me that twice, going through the airport in Addis Ababa, he's seen quite a significant groups of girls, very attractive young girls, uh, surrounded by soldiers in uniform. And he's asked the authorities at the airport in Addis what's happening, and they've told him, this is second-hand, I don't know what I've heard from him, but he's an honourable man, he's deeply concerned. Apparently, these are girls that have been sent to Saudi Arabia as sex slaves. They particularly like Ethiopians because they're very attractive girls. They like their features. Some who've had crosses on their forehead because they're Christians have had plastic surgery to have those crosses removed. And he was told by the authorities that Saudi sends in orders quite regularly for girls to be sent as sex slaves. And he's also heard second-hand, but it needs investigation, that they're sent out as sex slaves and they're abused. And sometimes they become pregnant. They're just taken out and shot. Now, this is something that needs investigation. I've tried to get this investigated. Um, I've tried, um, and it's not criticisms, it's just where people happen to be working and not working. But Anti-Slavery International are not working in Ethiopia. I think you're not working in Ethiopia. It's a great gap, a worrying gap. And my friend I trust entirely is passionately concerned. Now, if my amendment had gone through, then we would have had an obligation upon the authorities in Ethiopia to look into that and to report it. But I'm afraid there may be a lot of similar gaps around the world today where these horrors of modern-day slavery and trafficking are being carried out with impunity. So that's a challenge which confronts us all and why it's good to share the pain and the passion with you this morning. Thank you. Thanks for uh, those uh, insights and challenges. Um, there'll be a moment later on where we can come back and think about the role of government, role of our government uh, in this fight. But I mentioned uh, earlier that the, one of the impacts of the Modern Slavery Act was to open up a new front in the fight against uh, slavery, which was uh, in the commercial world and uh, the obligations on large companies uh, to report. So, Michael, that is more your world, corporate business. Um, we live in an incredibly connected world uh, of global supply chains, global marketplaces, um, and there's all kinds of issues in how to make supply chains transparent um, and how we actually harness the power of business and commerce to really benefit the millions uh, and particularly how to move compliance with the Modern Slavery Act from a risk register general counsel's office issue to one that genuinely brings relief and benefit. Solve that problem for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like um, 
like Caroline, who is always a treat to be on a panel. We've been met friends for decades, because we're both decades old. Hmm. Um, He's under the bed to me. Well, that's true, actually. Is it? (laughs) 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 I need to know which dye you use. Uh, but it is a real honor to be here with Kevin and also Caroline on this panel. Um, I'd like to begin with good news uh, and then face a little bit of the challenge the other way around. So, first of all, the, the, the Modern Slavery Act uh, requires companies over a certain economic value, I think it's 50 million, 36, 36 million pounds, so 50 million dollars roughly, uh, to have to report on an annual basis on what actions they are taking. Kevin will know because he is the authority on the receiving of these great corporate reports that they're not as many as there should be. In fact, uh, a lot of companies are reluctant to even address the issues at company level. I'm delighted to say, as far as I'm aware, but don't tell me I'm I'm wrong, KPMG does meet that obligation. I did check it. Um, (laughs) uh, In the UK and, and aims to meet it internationally. Now... Why is there a reluctance for companies to address the issue? Because as far as most companies are concerned, it isn't their problem. (coughs) This is the problem that relates to governments, to the United Nations, to uh, the legal profession, uh, to the moral crusades. It is not, according to companies, in many cases, their problem. But it is our problem. Because we employ people and deploy people and the resources and facilities that affect the modern slave trade, probably more than any other source of human movement. A good story. Marilyn Carlson. Now, some of you will know the Carlson name. The Carlson Group, Radisson, Radisson Blue, the hotels, Carlson Travel. I shared a breakfast with Marilyn in Minneapolis four years ago. A group of senior business leaders chaired by Paul Polman, the CEO of Unilever, we were having a discussion about the impact of business on specifically the sustainable development goals and the prioritization of those toughest to reach goals. And Marilyn announced at the breakfast with a newspaper article to back it up in the Mississippi, Minneapolis, whatever it was, Times or something, that she had instructed the Radisson Blue Network of Hotels to do regular check-in on the data provided by people who use day rooms in the hotel. Now, why do people use day rooms? They use day rooms for exactly the trafficking of young girls or young men. Uh, They use that for sex addiction (coughs) and misuse and prostitution purposes, some of whom book it on an hourly basis. Because most bookings are done (coughs) electronically, and the electronic system is neutral to who does the booking, they introduced a series of algorithmic codes into the Radisson Hotel chains, which now apply worldwide, which literally delete the payments of the individuals, and therefore when they arrive at the hotel, they cannot access the room. And that was their way of saying, we realize that we are culpable and responsible as a business And how can we stop it other than to prevent it from our premises? But then also to publicly campaign, as she has done, and as Radisson have done, specifically with the rest of the hotel world. And this is where it is so helpful. At some point, Airbnb will 
join, as it were, the conversation, to campaign with the rest of the HR world that this is a responsibility that can have action. Last year in um, 2017, John Lewis and Habitat withdrew a particularly wide range of properly purchased granite kitchen surfaces. They did that because as a result of forensic tracking, and I'm delighted to say KPMG provides a lot of that, particularly through our Indian services, our Australian services network, and also here in the UK, as a result of that forensic tracking, they were able to identify that it had been slave children who had been largely responsible for digging out the granite, accessing it, cutting it, and providing it um, for frontline sales. The decision to remove the granite surfaces, which everybody wants granite surfaces in their kitchens, was a decision of reduction of profit. Of course, a removal of a commercial service. They had to explain why they did so, and they prominently did explain why they did so. <coughs> so the commercial, the business world, would take this on when the heart of the executive leadership understand that actually there are things we need to do which affront, and this is where I'm going to give you one more difficult example, but that these things affront um, our own inclination towards freedom of commercial decision-making. So here is the difficult example. Um, everybody will be conscious, or many of you will be conscious, of the rare earth metal cobalt. There are actually nine rare earth metals that make up every mobile phone. So all of you have smartphones of one shape or another. And probably, yep, yep, you look at yours, he's smart. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> probably, whenever the next upgrade comes along, you kind of salivate at the opportunity. And I know some of you I can see in your faces have queued all night long outside the Apple store <laughs> uh, to, to get yours. Why do we need rare earth metals inside these phones. Uh, well, the reason we need them is for photo swapping. It's not for emails or text messages. It is photo swapping. That is what allows the rapid exchange of information and data contained in the pixelation of a picture to transfer instantaneously from one phone to another. It can be transferred anywhere around the world. Uh, there is substantive evidence that access to particularly cobalt, but there are nine rare earth metals that contain it, which 60% of the world's cobalt resources are found in the Congo, and that a significant proportion of that is sourced by child slave labor. Because the access points to the mine shafts are very tight, so they're severely deep, uh, and we're talking about the need for the smallest of children to be able to dig out the cobalt and the other rare earth metals to access them for our phones in order, and this is where I place the guilt on me and on you, that we can share stupid pictures a lot of the time. A lot of the time. Things of no value and consequence. And when you then take the link to uh, the need for us to be idle-minded and picture-desperate, some little child has enabled that potential. The Financial Times carried a challenging article in its business section, uh, the company's market section, just a couple of months back, about Tesla. Uh, four of you own, all own them. Ron caught fire in California last week, so maybe you're not so keen to own them anymore. But uh, <laughs> I was thinking Ron, but never mind, there you go. And uh, <laughs> Tesla, <laughs> Tesla is the beautiful battery-powered car. 
280 miles without having to be recharged, plug it in at home, off you go the next day, drive up to near the border of Scotland and you're fine. Great cars, fantastic. The article in the FT was pointing out that as Tesla has gone from a $150,000 to $180,000 car to now a $30,000 car, so we have three different cars in the range, therefore becoming more mass popular, the demand for the battery is even greater. But the battery is made up of the same rare earth metals found in the foam. So here we are doing environmentally appropriate work to, to literally drive sustainability and carbon responsibility. But the challenge of that is the dignity of those who access the fine resources necessary for our finer future. And this does come right to the very heart of the willingness of us as consumers to curtail our extreme habits, but also to pay the real cost involved. Were we to decide, and I just throw this out, I haven't asked Tesla whether they are well prepared to ramp the charge of the car, but were we to decide that instead of buying the 30,000 pound Tesla, the latest version, which looks gorgeous by the way, that its real cost is 55,000 pounds. To save the sake of the children possibly involved in the access to the rare earth metals needed to develop the battery, would we pay the cost? Because this is where the rubber hits the road, literally. From cars <coughs> to phones, to clothes, to and th those we are aware, the largest number involved in any form of either uh, slave trafficking um, or, or bonded labor in the UK are involved in the food processing industry. So those people who literally churn out the fine fare that we feast on at our tables, when we look for the intriguing new things available to us, from Aldi to Tesco's to Sainsbury's to Waitrose to wherever, make your choice, um, then that fine food is often processed by people who are bonded in some form of slavery within the UK. So it comes back to the challenge for us as individuals, the companies are there responding to what we want. It's a bit like the choice of newspaper, isn't it? Some are clearly not news and some are clearly toilet paper. And you have to <laughs> choose whether you pay money in the morning for toilet paper with a red top or whether you actually, <laughs> whether you actually seek out news. You have to make that choice. What you can't then do is blame the proprietor of the newspaper because you bought it. Right, thank you. Um, I'm sure that's served lots of thoughts. Um, I have a bundle of questions following up on that, which maybe we'll get to later. Um, but I wanted to bring Ken in. Um, so Ken, as we, as we, noted, as we noted earlier, <coughs> the, first, um, the very first modern-day slavery commissioner um, was talking earlier and just reflecting on the fact that you had the blank, blank piece of paper, you had all the aspirations, and none of the... No, no history to guide you. Um, and uh, I thought it would be just appropriate, um, Kevin uh, moves on in uh, a few weeks' time, but I thought it would be appropriate for us to sh express our appreciation for mm. Kevin's time. Mm. Um, so Kevin, uh, you have...
being the independent commissioner. Your job has been to keep us honest as to what's mm. going on and uh, what needs to happen. Um, you have had, in your role and in your previous roles in, in the police, first-hand experience of what government's been doing, of what NGOs have been doing, of what organisations like the NHS have been doing. What's your reflection on how civil society, all those non-governmental organisations, non-direct governmental organisations, can come together to make a difference in this space? Well, I, I think, um, um, as has been said on the panel by the previous speakers, um, this is a situation which is going to take uh, many approaches um, that need to be coordinated, need to have a clear objective, which is actually to eradicate this crime. And I think the first thing that we need to do, and that's where civil society comes in, is to realise this is part of our everyday society. And as Michael just said, it's in the phones we're carrying, the clothes we're wearing, the food we're eating. So we are living in amongst this horrendous crime. But it's not always something that's happening far away from our own shores. Last year, 5,200 people were referred into the national referral mechanism. The highest percentage of those were UK nationals. The highest percentage of those were UK children. So it's actually happening here in our own backyard, not something that's just happening far away. So I think by working with civil society and the NGOs, we can actually reach out to communities that perhaps don't trust the state. And we have wonderful legislation like the Modern Slavery Act, and we've got the supply chain transparency element, but it was civil society and working with my office, we realised that actually 40 of the 100 biggest suppliers into the government hadn't done their statements. So actually, that's something we could raise, and today I've raised even more issues around that, but the fact that you know I want to see this could be covering actually what the government does as well. And civil society were able to raise that with me. And of course, when I went to Australia um, and worked with the Australian government, they are now going to have that in the, their legislation. And that's not criticizing government because the UK government took a big step in creating the Modern Slavery Act. It's about something has been identified by civil society that actually this could be slightly better. And that's what we need to be careful of. Not everything is an attack on government. Sometimes it's saying, actually, that was good, but this could be better. Mm -hmm. And that is sometimes where my role comes in, mm -hmm. actually, how do I negotiate that? But what civil society and the other organisations do, when they come together, for example, the National Health Service, I work with them at a strategic level. How do we get this into the National Health Service? So through the Royal College of Nursing. But then working locally on how this actually then resonates or actually works in hospitals. Because it's no good creating a policy that doesn't work at three o'clock in the morning in the London hospital. So they were really crucial for that. But also, then they would have access to some of the unique, uh, um, unique uh, communities. For example, the Filipino community that probably wouldn't trust the state would work with the Catholic Church. For example, uh, the Anglican Church, and there are communities, particularly in the African world, that would work with the Anglican Communion, and so the NGOs working in those fields. And then we have other things that have been done, like working with schools, whereby the state doesn't have a role there, but actually civil society can. So I think about raising the issue up there, but also what civil society has been key, and one of the things that I've made clear is that 
We need to accept two things, really. Firstly, we need to accept the shame that we're causeless, because if we accept the shame, then we accept the responsibility, then that means we've got to do something. And the other thing, and I think uh, uh, David spoke on this, we need to accept that this is serious, organised crime. Because the response has often been that it's a social issue. But this is where people elect to trade in suffering of other people. And if you see it as a serious organised crime, yes, the police and the criminal justice system can't be the sole solution. But with the private sector and civil society and other statutory agencies, we have got an opportunity to address this. And particularly, as Baroness Cox said, if we go upstream and work upstream and deal with this at source and give people the opportunities so that the traffickers and the exploiters aren't the most powerful <coughs> in those environments because people are educated, people don't suffer from health issues. So we can use development and rule of law to actually stop this at source. But it's only by working with the non-government organisations locally, nationally and internationally that we can actually build that picture and have the impact to actually reach out to those communities and embed processes in there that aren't just for a two-week lecture or a two-week visit, that they are there for the long term and actually change the culture in those societies. The private sector's got a role to play there and is starting to do it, I would say, not quickly enough, because actually in the private economy it's estimated 16 million people are in the situation of modern slavery around the world. Well, Ryanair move 120 million people a year. American Airlines move 200 million people a year. When the private sector want to do something, they can do it quickly and do it globally. I think they can also do that for those 16 million people. You will see there's some media coming out today about companies in the UK that have got people in exploitation and bonded labour situations, big companies in the UK, by bad work practices. And two of the things I'm asking for to come out of the, you know, the B20, which is part of the G20, is the employer pays principle. So why is it that people have to pay for work in parts of the world? And it was NGOs that brought that information to me through the Institute of Human Rights and Business. So why are people in the poorest parts of the world paying for jobs? That can't be right. And paying six months' wages up front. They can never clear the debt. And the other principle that we need to have is why is it only three of the G20 countries have signed up to the ILO forced labour mm. protocol? We need all the countries <coughs> signing up to the ILO protocol. So once we've got those conditions where we've got the NGOs working together, we've got rule of law, we've got the private sector, and we've got governance, which we know where there's vacuums, this crime actually then uh, actually uh, you know manifests incredibly, if you look up the Lake Chad Basin, up into Libya, the amount of trafficking and slavery and exploitation there, and I've met some of the girls there who have been raped 10 times a day just so they can earn enough money to get across the Mediterranean, and one girl who I spoke with at 15, as she went across the Mediterranean, she saw bodies floating in the Mediterranean when she arrived in the UK, uh, sorry, in southern Italy, she was then destined for brothels somewhere in Europe, thinking that she was coming into a free world. So there's a lot of responsibility there. One thing I say all the time as well is that this is a race. And the race isn't for us. The race is for those victims. Because those victims are suffering at this very moment. 
And we are in the starting block, and the pistol have gone off. But we haven't left the racing box. We haven't run. We haven't started the run. And yet the finishing line for those victims is getting further and further away. And I think there is no room for celebration. The Modern Slavery Act is a good piece of legislation, but we need to start using it, and we need to call to account businesses. We need to say to law enforcement, why is there not more use of the protection orders that are available? Why are there not more prosecutions? Why is it that victims have had their allowances cut? We need to raise all those issues, because actually, at the moment, these people are still in suffering. Thank you all. Um, you, you've talked back about the um, earlier abolitionist movement, and also in our own times, we've had the Jubilee 2000 campaign. So we have um, a track record, as it were, of, of churches coming as a catalyst to develop wider social movements to tackle an issue of justice. Um, but for me, I think my time in this started uh, meeting a, a young man called James Kofi Annan, who you all know, um, who was sold aged six for $25 into the fishing industry in Ghana. Um, of the six that went with him, little boys, three of them drowned in that fishing work. Um, James did survive, escaped age 13, and managed to get educated and ultimately um, set up an NGO that worked to save children from slavery in Ghana. But when I asked him this very same question, he said, if every single church and faith community could give two minutes a month to talk about modern slavery, you could make an extraordinary impact. So it's really about us waking up to the issue of justice. As you say, it's a serious organized crime, but it is also in faith terms a fundamental violation of humanity made in the image of God. Um, the faith groups do take it seriously. Um, I think we know the reasons to feel desolate about this, but we also have to find in our faith reasons for hope. Um, 2014, Kevin and I were both there, um, I think yourself actually, but with the, at the Vatican when Pope Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury and other global faith leaders came together and committed their faith groups to work in partnership with governments and civil society <coughs> and business to <coughs> end modern slavery. So the willingness is there. Um, and it is, of course, as we heard, all about collaboration, ecumenical collaboration, interfaith collaboration, but also collaboration with states, and civil society and business. Um, uh, Caroline, you gave us some peas. Um, we've um, taken these. We have an ecumenical group with the Catholics, Anglican, Salvation Army, Orthodox, and others who work on training in different parts of the globe to understand what is the, um, the church's response to tackling modern slavery. Absolutely not that we can do it alone, but to understand what a holistic response would look like and what are the particular contributions that the churches and faith groups can make. And so we have what we call the, the 7P list. Um, but just to give you some examples, I mean, in prevention, as we've heard um, about getting upstream, building awareness, understanding the risks, helping communities to understand, working through faith groups, through schools. And also taking very ser seriously what we heard from Michael about the consumer responsibility and business leaders of faith working in that context. But the churches of faith groups are global. So one of the pieces I'd say is we have churches across eastern Congo where the mines are. 
How do we join this up so that we look at actually protecting children from this egregious crime? So there is the um, prevention side, and that must be the most important role for faith groups, but also protection of victims and survivors. How do people in every community understand what are the forms of modern slavery in our community, and how do we tackle this? Um, how do we report it? What are the helplines? Um, so awareness of those issues. And also working, for example, with law enforcement on providing safe spaces, because it may be more appropriate to interview a victim who's been rescued in a church hall rather than a police station. And we have examples, let's say, in Carlisle, where the police and the churches do that very piece of collaboration. Um, the Clure Initiative, which is the Church of England response, has an app for car washes, and it has shows the signs of slavery in the car wash industry. So as you go in, have your car washed, you can actually tick through. And if it looks like this may, there may be slavery here, that go app then takes up that information to take it to the police. Um, prosecution. Absolutely, this must not pay. So what is the role of faith groups in working to end impunity? Um, the neutral venues to work with the police, but also our work with IJM in a number of countries where they bring churches together with their own um, legal teams to look at um, prosecution. Policy as well, looking at understanding legislation and where there is a role for church leadership to work in shaping, along with others, more effective legislation. Um, and the Bishop Derby, I think, has played a role in this country um, in, that, in that shape. Um, but of course, all about partnership and who is doing what and how do we add value and connect together to ensure that we have the best possible partnership across the sectors. Um, but as my friend James said, participation. Every single church, every single faith group talking once a month on this. Um, this is a way that we can all be equipped. Um, and to cover all of that, and leaders will gather today in prayer. Thank you. And I'm going to ask you this question very um, quickly. We almost no time to okay. ask it. Um, but you're a reverend, so you'll know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, um, many people with no faith could understand most of those truths. Why is prayer important? Well, but we cannot do this alone. But our hope is in the work of God, of the Holy Spirit moving through the world. That in praying and in bringing all our communities together in prayer, it opens hearts and minds um, to be really alert to seeing um, the situation, but also seeing the transformation. Um, it's something that everybody can be involved in. Um, we have um, an initiative called the Freedom Sunday, which brings people ecumenically together to have one day a year that looks at uh, slavery and how to respond. That's now becoming Freedom Weekend because the Jewish community has made Freedom Seder and this year the Muslim community are also looking at that. So just to end with a tiny story, last year I visited my parents' village and visited their grave. Three days later I heard, um, it's a beautiful little village in the south of England, I heard about um, the discovery in some caves of a cannabis farm and young Vietnamese boys being kept underground in this cannabis farm. Now it was half a mile from my home, uh, my home church. So praying, our eyes being open so that we see what is happening. Great, thank you. Can we just show your appreciation to the panel? Thank you. Thank you. We, we have just a few moments for any kind of question or insight or reflection, anything else. Yes, 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 Tony.
Sure. So I, uh, you will know, I think, that I've raised all of those issues. And one of the things I was uh, did a report for the government last year was about the national referral mechanism to address those issues. And it's been agreed that the decisions around victim status is going to be removed from the immigration uh, side of and from the National Crime Agency and will be a, a central place in the Home Office. Um, what the second panel, that if there's anybody who doesn't get uh, accepted as a victim, will go to a multi-agency panel. So some of those issues will be addressed. The other thing around children, um, they are well looked after. And one of the issues I raised was that it should be safeguarding at the local authority. And that wasn't being properly understood. And now it is. So um, there is that issue around up to the age of 18. There is that, you know, because other European countries do give people longer. But one of the things that is coming with the new NRM reform is that at the end of the NRM period, so which is going to be 90 days, there's a six-month referral process where you'll be looked after in the community. It's not ideal, it's not perfect, but it's an advancement and a vast improvement of what currently is there. There is also, uh, Lord McColl has put a bill forward around um, discretionary leave. Um, I don't think that discretionary leave is appropriate in every case because sometimes <coughs> it's not because you can be a victim without any exploitation, but I think it should be considered more often and should be available to the people who do need it. So I think some of that will address some of those issues, I hope. This is not. Oh, sorry. Too much. Uh, this is not to give you my, my entire biography, um, but um, I, I also have a role um, here beyond the 2019 uh, presidency. The International Association of Civil Aviation Captains, an organisation you may well not have heard of, <laughs> um, but it represents 170 captaincies, I think it's 170 captaincies uh, around the world. Um, I, I've 
Thank you. 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 Thank you.
Um, I think what you raise is, is absolutely right, because if you take in India class, you know, systems that are there, it's expected that some people will be slaves. Um, and shouldn't they be grateful that they've got a job? Uh, and I've been to Nigeria a number of occasions, and you know, one of the things that I saw there was around the juju, and accepted as a ritual. Even when people were subject, part of another religion, they would accept juju for some kind of witchcraft for travel. And then we got an agreement by the local uh, tribal leaders and by the Oba and the governor in Edo State that this will no longer be permitted. So although that was a cultural thing, they realized the damage that it was causing. So I think it's about education, about the cultural issues, and changing the culture. That's what the private sector needs to do around their business models where people you know, far away may be exploited in their business. They need to change their culture around the way they do procurement. So, so much of this is about culture, and faith groups, faith-based groups, have got a really big role, like you hear about in the airports. You know, the chaplains do a great deal of work, and one of the things I'm doing with chaplains is through the Department of Peacekeeping Operations at the UN, because there are chaplains all over the world in conflict or in, uh, you know, peacekeeping situations. There are great eyes and ears on the ground to change the culture. You know. Great, we are running So I'm going to give, sorry. well, I said, uh, what I'm going to do, just to round up on the yeah. chat line, is I'm going to give you all a standard 
we respond either to um, have other there or um, generally on the, on the, on the morning of. Uh, I don't mind which way do you go. I think governments will move when the voters move. And so, in a sense, this idea of creating a movement that says no more um, is, is absolutely crucial. So I think that that's the role of faith groups, of civil society, in a sense, to make this, this shared voice on that. Um, and I think in terms of equipping, just to come back to your <coughs> point, we're working with the mission to seafarers around the, the world, around the apostleship of the sea. And so we'd love to reach out to you as well and work on this. But thank you for that. So touching on your point there, um, you, you, you say exactly the way it is, and you know, these are the challenges you have. You know, there will be, you see the Sky News, and there was, you know, in the Congo, for example, there are other countries like China buying massive amounts of coal sand. So um, when you look at the way that you deal with that, if you just pull away from it, the people could suffer far more, far, far more, because there's no commerce, no industry whatsoever. We need to give them good business. We need to work with them to give them good jobs, good opportunities, education, development, equality, all those things that our standards stay, what we stand for. And the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, whose room we're in now, has done a lot of work around that, working with Commonwealth countries. And last year, you talk about Saudi Arabia. You know, I was sat at the UN with our Prime Minister, Theresa May, and she had countries in the room who normally wouldn't talk about this, their leaders, who have signed up to a call to action that she's leading on. So diplomatically, getting them to come and join this fight and get legislation, for example, in Australia, now in France, now in Canada, the Netherlands, that supports our legislation, then we will actually start <coughs> to turn the world so the political will is there, I hope. Kevin's actually said what I was going to say in response to your point, but I, I will take it back. Um, Especially here, it's very easy to point at the government. The government has responsibilities, but government is meant to be, in our case certainly, representative of the public interest. So the public better have an interest. And you, with the collars around your neck turned backwards, have a powerful place in raising public interest challenges. In the Congo, within your own church network, and here. So don't point, vocalize. <laughs> so very briefly, just two quick points. First, with regard to interest and interest. Very often I try to raise these kind of issues with our government. We're told no country has an interest in other countries, only interest. We have so many interests in various countries. And it's up, I think, for those of us who have voices to put our governments on the spot to call them to account and not let interest override the fundamental concerns for human freedom, justice, liberty, slavery, etc. So it's up to us to put pressure on the government, not let those interests uh, shape our foreign policy. And with regard to culture, the point I'd like to make is that it's very, very important what you're doing. It's very important what you're doing with different faith communities. But I do a lot of work with Muslim women in this country suffering from Sharia law in this country, and particularly as connected to divorce or polygamy and so on. And very often these are closed communities, and we're not given access to knowledge of their rights. And just one very powerful example, and I may just finish with a powerful example to challenge this all. Um, again, another friend of mine who is, uh, again, happens to be an obstetrician, but he had a, a 63-year-old man, what is 63-year-old no, man, his 23-year-old wife, forgive the anatomy, to have a repair of hymen, which is um, you know, an illegal operation except for clinical reasons. So my friend said, well, why do you want this for your 23-year-old wife? He said, I want to take her back 
the country where he came from, Pakistan, and she will, um, I'll marry her off to somebody else, he'll get a visa to come to Britain, and I get 10,000 pounds for this. Now, how many times that's happening, we don't know, but you can be absolutely certain that lady, aged 23, to be used, abused in that way, and husband get a visa to come to this country, she'll not have been told about her rights mm -hmm. at airport to plead for help. Mm -hmm. So I'd say to my friends who work in the faith communities, mm -hmm. can we really make sure that they do get right through to the most vulnerable members in those most closed communities who really do not know their rights in this country mm -hmm. and therefore are ultimately very, very vulnerable? So that's my plea to clerical faith communities, my plea to clerical public to hold our government to account and not to interest, uh, condone what is unacceptable. Thank you. Um, I just want to tell you, I'm, um, <coughs> young, young Phil, um, I was at a conference of uh, a very good conference of uh, anti-slavery campaigners uh, a few months ago, and it was wonderful. Lots of wonderful things happened, but all the things that were being talked about were about good for government tactics, so education, uh, poverty alleviation, all wonderful stuff. All they were about welfare tactics, what to do when someone has been rescued. Before it is anything else, it's a crime scene. Mm. We need companies to pursue the illegality of slavery with the same aggression <coughs> they pursue mm. the illegality of corruption or theft. It's a crime scene. In IGM last year, we rescued 5,800 people from slavery. There's 3,500 people in our escort program at the moment. We saw 288 slave traders convicted and sent to prison. That's people out of the system. Ending impunity is not the only crime to be on the table. Corruption on the basis of laws being an important crime. Four modern slaveries on Israel is a crime scene itself. We need to respond in that way. William Wilberforce, we are friends with William Wilberforce. He said three things are needed to end slavery. Number one was awareness. Thank you, Phil, mm. for mm -hmm. being aware. Thank you for our hopes, hoping the messages that we've heard and the insights that have been shared and multiplying them through your congregations and your networks and your settings. Awareness. The second thing he said <coughs> was uh, money. Yeah. You are very welcome to go to the IGN newspaper or website <laughs> and hand over all your worldly wealth. <laughs> it will be very welcome. And the third thing he said was prayer. Mm. He pressed on us greatly in prayer. Mm. The three of us see the end mm. of a wickedly pernicious industry. Mm. We need not just the resources of our best minds and our best actions. We need the resources of the Holy Spirit mm. to breathe life into what we're doing so that we can see liberty. you're wearing your dog collar, which is, you know, is unusual. Um, <laughs> would you end, since this is a national prayer breakfast, by praying for us? Father God, we thank you for all prayer. We thank you for everyone who is seeking to make a difference in China. Help us all to know what our response to prayer should be. Help us to make a difference and help us.